scripture passage today is from Matthew chapter 25. It's very famous. Whether you've been in church before in your life or not, you've probably heard at least part of this passage. It's a parable Jesus is telling. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's his way of referring to himself. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, and take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not in invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. May God add his richest blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. We're talking today about the last judgment. The last several weeks we'll be looking at through, working through some of the basic beliefs of the faith using something called the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed is not the Bible, but it's like a summary, a, a syllabus of some of the essentials of the faith. And this week, it's this great phrase, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. In an old-fashioned translation, it says, he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. It's a lovely phrase. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. It's the last judgment, which makes a lot of us uncomfortable. Part of the reason is when we think of judgment, we think of judgmentalism, the shaking of your finger. No, 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 no. You're wrong. In fact, maybe you haven't been in church for a long time because when the Christians that you know are people who are really judgmental. There was, you made mistakes in your life, things happened, and you feel like rather than embracing you or offering you grace, people just shook their finger at you. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were in an airport. And we were in the security line, and it was a long line, and it was a classic TSA situation where there are eight metal detectors and only one team working on one of them. I don't know why that's the case. Nobody asked me. So I'm waiting in line, and I'm somebody who prizes efficiency. So I take off my belt ahead of time. I untie my shoes ahead of time. I strip off my watch and everything. For me, it's a point of pride when they say, you sure you have everything out of your pockets? I say, I am sure. So I'm there, ready to go through the thing, and there's a ruckus behind us. And there's this lady trying to get through the velvet rope and cut her way to the front. And she says, hey, can I cut in front of you to each person? Can I cut in front of you? Because I have a flight I need to catch. And we didn't really know what to do until this one guy said, lady, I'm on that same flight. I was here on time. I'm waiting in the line. Go back and start from the back. Now, we could approach that. I could have said, you're right. 
you terrible, unpunctual person. This will teach you. Get, in, get here on time and learn your lesson. And often it may seem like that the idea of judgment is like that, that God is just waiting to nail us on all the small mistakes we've made. But in fact, according to the Bible, judgment is not about God snapping his finger at us. Judgment is, in fact, about justice, about righting what's wrong. We consider a judge to have given a just judgment in a case when the judge has acted with justice. When somehow those who need to be compensated are compensated correctly. When somehow those who have been wronged at least have part of their wrongs redressed. Now, in the case of this lady who's cutting the line to get to the front, big deal, right? We could have just said, okay, whatever, cut to the front. But as this guy pointed out, and you may not agree with him, but this guy pointed out, well, I was here on time, and that's the rule. And in those sorts of situations, we could say, and maybe you say this, you know, the idea of uh, last judgment just seems so unfair. I mean, if God is love, why doesn't God just sort of wipe his hands and wipe the slate clean at the end of history? It's a good point. If only everything were like my acquaintance who was cutting in line that day. But that's not the way the world works. The world is not the way it is because a few people cut in line sometimes as they're waiting to catch their flight. The world is the way it is because there's a lot of sin and brokenness and betrayal and murder in it. Now, it was a little bit before my time, but some of you will remember what happened in Cambodia in the 1970s. Call it the Killing Fields. There was a man who took the name Pol Pot. It wasn't his birth name, but he assumed that name and then he assumed control of the country. And the sad story of Cambodia is there was about 8 million people there in the 70s, and between 1 and 2 million people were killed by their own government. And the reason we use phrases like the killing fields is that you can go, and I know we have children among us, so I didn't want to put the pictures on the screen. You can go on the internet and search for a picture of the killing fields, and the first image that will come up will be this huge field filled with hundreds and hundreds of bones. Little children, dentists, peasants, who are murdered and tortured by their own government for no reason. Evil running amok. Now, if, if that's you, if that's your family, the idea that God can somehow say at the end of time, oh well, we all make mistakes, I'm going to wipe my hands of it, is inherently unjust. But let's bring it a little closer to home. Let's say you grew up in a family that was a family in name only. No love, no safety. In fact, what if the people who were meant to protect you were the people who were hurting you? You know that those kind of hurts can't just be shrugged off. You can't just say, oh, well, don't cry over spilled milk, get over it. Because wrongs really matter in this life. This is why one of the things that little children inherently catch on to is this great phrase, it's not fair. Don't little children always say that? It's not fair. And, of course, as good parents, we say, life isn't fair, or fair ended in the Garden of Eden, or get over it, kid, Right? Because we know that's how the world works. And yet the children are right in a certain sense. Because somehow there's an idea of justice in the universe. And any God who doesn't right the wrongs that have been done through the bloody years of history is no God that actually loves his creation. It's mere sentimentalism to say, oh well, everybody makes mistakes, let's just, let's just ignore it. In fact, throughout the scriptures, the idea of judgment is not about God snapping his finger at somebody. The idea of judgment is when God finally brings about justice. When Mary hears that she's going to give birth to the Messiah in Luke's gospel in chapter 1, she has this great song. She says, 
My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. She's just an ordinary peasant girl under Roman occupation. From now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And she goes on, she says, His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. Listen to this. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. See, Mary knew that when the Messiah came, one of the characteristics of his rule would be justice, the righting of what's gone wrong. Rather than the last judgment being some sort of Yet another example of God just exercising arbitrary judgment and wagging his finger at us. The last judgment is when God makes the things right that are wrong in this world. Some of you are here today and it took everything you could to come to church because of the wrongs that have recently been done to you. And you know that if God really is love, somehow those wrongs will have to be righted. Now, on the other hand, the idea of a of a loving God who also punishes seems somehow unfair to us or, or not really an example of love. And I understand that to a point, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But the problem with the idea that a really loving God wouldn't talk about judgment is that Jesus talks more about judgment than any other figure in the scriptures. The same one who says, turn the other cheek, bless those who persecute you, love your enemies, is the same one who talks about judgment. In other words, it seems to be that if God is most loving, there's an, an element of justice that comes with it. Or to put it in another way, you cannot separate the justice and the love of God. Now, in this great parable that Jesus tells, we should remember it is, of course, just a parable. It's not a theological treatise. It's not a dictionary entry. It's just a parable. But what I think what Jesus is trying to tell us is very important, particularly to modern people like you and me. So what does he say? Well, Jesus says, at the end of time, I'm going to return. And all the people of the world will be scattered in front of me. And I'll separate them one from another like sheep from the goats. And what is the characteristic that separates the sheep from the goats? Jesus says, come over here and stand on this side. All of you who came to church every week and believed the right things. And everybody else who doesn't believe the right things, you're all going to hell. That's what he says, right? If only it were that simple. See, one of the things that I love about Jesus in the scriptures is that the more you study, the more whatever preconceived notions you have about what God's love or justice is like, he explodes them. This loving, incredible figure says what separates the sheep from the goats is not whether they believed the right things, but the sum total of the choices they made in their lives. And in fact, I'd say that is extremely just. Listen. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then he says to the others, he says, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And what do both groups say? Did you catch the parable? Both groups say, Lord, we don't remember doing that. When was that? And Jesus says, no, 
Every choice you made was, in essence, a choice for or against me. Lord, when did we, re- I don't remember, I don't remember not feeding you when you were hungry. Well, it wasn't me the way I'm with you now, but it was a choice for and against me because when people choose to feed the hungry, they're choosing me in my way. Where are the sum total of the choices in your lives currently taking you? If life is just the sum of all the small choices we make from the moment of our birth to the moment of our death, where are your choices taking you? Or better yet, what kind of person are you becoming? We're about to celebrate our two-year con- uh, anniversary as a congregation, and we're going to have a great party next week. In fact, we're the kind of church that uses any excuse we have to have a party. You know, I don't know if you've ever known any lovesick teenagers, but the ones I know say things like, today is our 13-day anniversary. I love him so much. You know, they pick, today is our 17-day anniversary. Today is our 11-month anniversary, right? We're kind of like that as a church. And we don't apologize for it. It's good to have parties. And so on our six-month anniversary, which was 18 months ago, if you can believe it, we were going to have a uh, potluck supper uh, downstairs right after church. And I made the mistake of saying, I would like there to be a table overflowing with dessert at this said supper. Now, I've never noticed anybody in the church to ever listen to anything I've said before or since. But that day, at least, the church listened and we had an incredible feast of dessert. Now, 18 months later, so today, I've been noticing, you know, I'm getting a little, I'm getting a little tubby. I'm getting a little soft, a little flabby. And frankly, I blame the church for that one day 18 months ago. See, if you hadn't brought the dessert that day and I hadn't eaten it, it all would be well. You get the inherent ridiculousness of that statement, right? It doesn't matter what I ate one day 18 months ago. What matters is what I ate 17 months ago and 16 months ago and so on. Who you are physically is a result of your choices over time. Listen, what I eat at age 30 doesn't matter, but what I eat at age 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 and so on will determine what the state of my health is in those times. Let me give you a moral example, though. That's a physical one. My little son is two and a half years old, and he is one of the great complainers of history. The kid has it down to an art. It's amazing. I think he gets it from his mom. And, uh, you know, he's the kind of kid that if he, you tell him no about one thing, then the rest of the evening he's just in a bad mood. I don't want that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to play with that. I don't want to eat that. And he kind of holds on to his little grievance. Now, he's two and a half. That's what two and a half year olds do. In fact, maybe our job as a parent, parents is to help him understand his feelings and, and make different choices. But what's scary to me is that I see that same sense of holding on to a bitter grudge in my own life. See, I'm somebody, I'm a grown man, but what I find myself often is when I'm in a place in which either I feel like someone has slighted me or been unkind to me or said an unkind word, or I'm in an uncomfortable situation, I often hold on to that grievance. When my wife and I have arguments, often I'm the one who won't want to make amends or work towards repair. I'll hold on to it. And I don't know if you know anybody else like me, but I can tell you, I will know that holding on to that grudge is a bad thing for me. And all I need to do is let it go. And yet somehow I'm, I'm preferring to delight in my sense of grievance and holding on to it tight. 
Now, what would happen if that's the choice that I make with my life for the next 50 years? What kind of person would I be? I'd be becoming, I think you could say, a hellish creature, unfit for heaven. Now, I don't know why it's the case, but it seems like the one thing that God never chooses to do is override human freedom. I don't understand it exactly. I'm not a philosopher. I don't understand all these elements. I don't know how God's uh, uh, foretelling of the future can work in with our free will. I don't understand it. And yet it seems that God never overrides human freedom. And so if I'm making choices day after day against God with my own sense of grievance and entitlement, if I'm choosing bitterness and brokenness rather than joy over and over again, it may be the case that at the end of my life and then throughout eternity, God can't give me eternal joy. I can't accept it. No matter what the Lord gifts me with, I'll say, ah, I don't want that. That person's here, I don't want to be here then. You never righted this wrong. How come I'm the one who had to do this? I worked so hard. You can see that sense of grievance. And you can see how that could be the case with Sins of violence and anger and lust and grief. What kind of creature are you turning into with the sum total of your choices? It's a scary thought. And before you think that the, the answer is just to work towards the poor, you didn't read or hear the story. See, Jesus doesn't say the people who are making choices for me are the ones who care for the hungry and care for the thirsty. He also has this great phrase, this is verse 35. I was a stranger and you invited me in. That has nothing to do with whether somebody is poor or not. It's not that simple. I was a stranger and you invited me and I was in prison and you came to visit me. What Jesus is saying is that all your life you are making choices either that work with my will or against it. Either you're choosing to be somebody who walks across the room, the first one to reach a hand across the racial divide, the first person to bring forgiveness to someone who has hurt you. Either you're choosing to be that person, and those choices are affecting your character, or you're not, and you're going the other way. Which way are you going? Which way am I going? Now, there are some people who say, and this is a very this is a profound point, but isn't the message of the scripture and of the church that ultimately love wins? It's the title of a popular book that came out a couple years ago. Because if the devil is walking around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, as First Peter memorably puts it, then if there are people in eternal punishment, isn't it, doesn't it seem like that love loses and evil and wickedness win? That's a good point. How could a loving God countenance his creatures in eternal punishment? And I don't know how to answer that question. It's a great point. Perhaps we'll all get to the other side one day and realize that hell is empty. Wouldn't we praise God for it? But the one who, mo who shows us what love is like and what God is like, Jesus of Nazareth, is the one who talks also about punishment. I don't understand how God's love and grace for the world can be reconciled with, his, with the sense of justice that he loves. But I do know this. At the center of God's grace and God's justice is Jesus. The creed says that he will come again to judge 
the living and the dead. So at the center of all those things is the one with the nail scars in his hand, the crucified and risen Lord. I don't understand how ultimately God's justice will be meted out or how it will work. But I do know the one who is the judge is not some faceless heavenly bureaucrat. It is Jesus Christ himself, the one who ate with sinners, the one who has in his risen body still the marks of the crucifixion. And it is in him that I put my choice. And it's him that I'm encouraging you and I to choose today. And this is where I think grace comes in. I think grace is not that God overlooks our choices, but that God always and forever gives us a choice to choose him. I find that such good news. Regardless of what kind of mistakes you've made in your family, regardless of what you have done that no one else knows about, regardless of the betrayals in which you've participated, regardless of the hurts that you've done, you have a choice today to turn away from those things and turn towards God. You have a choice to choose today. That's, in fact, what repentance is. Because one day the Lord is coming back and he's going to right all the wrongs. And then everything that's hidden will become clear. And ultimately everything sad will become untrue. And the one at the center of those judgments is the crucified ones with his hands out extended in love for the world. And it is in that judge that I put my faith and the church proclaims Jesus, the risen son of God. What choice are you going to make today? Amen. I'd like to invite you to stand up. And I'm going to choose today to put my faith in this one. As we say together the words of the Apostles' Creed, it may be today that you don't understand these words. Maybe a phrase like the Holy Catholic Church seems strange to you. We're going to work through that. In fact, I don't know that God is calling us to understand everything perfectly. Our God is just calling us to put our faith in the perfect son that he's given for the world. So church, what do we believe? Let's say together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. God, we believe. Help our unbelief. God, we choose. Help our choices. Send your Holy Spirit on us, Lord, to teach us what it means to choose you and choose life and turn away from death and destruction. Give us, Lord, what we don't have, the ability to turn towards you, the knowledge to know what's right and the courage to do it. And give us a faith that puts all our trust in you, the coming judge, who will judge the living and the dead and make all things right and all things new. We ask this in your name.